Hi, my name's Eric. I'll be reading you selections from the E-edition of today's Cape Cod Times. Today's date is Wednesday, February 7th of 2024. We'll start with the weather, as we always do. Across the Cape and Islands today, considerable cloudiness, a high of 38 expected. A little chilly out there. Tonight, partly cloudy, a low of 30 in the overnight. On Thursday, tomorrow, mostly sunny, a little warmer, high of 42, low of 30. On Friday, expect partial sunshine, high of 43, low of 38. Saturday warms up quite a bit, and Sunday as well for this time of year. High of 49, a low of 41, with sun and areas of high clouds. Really nice day on Saturday. And Sunday, partly sunny, high of 53, low of 36. So, um... Super Bowl watching could be outside if you had a TV out there. It's almost nice enough to uh, sit out on a patio and uh, listen to the Super Bowl or whatever. Sunrise today was at 6.47 a.m. It'll set at 5.04 p.m. We'll have 10, minute, 10 hours. We'll have more than 10 minutes. It's not the North Pole. We'll have 10 hours and 17 minutes of daylight. The moonrise at 5.26 a.m. It will set at 2.05 p.m. And now we'll move to the front of the paper where the news and lottery results are kept. And we read those lottery results because, well, somebody asked for them. If there's something you would like read to the blind or those who are print disabled, you can email us at info at audiblelocalledger.org or call us at 508-539-2030 and we'll consider reading it. And if you miss any of the information that we share in our readings, you can always go to audiblelocalledger.org. And in the upper right corner is the Archived Readings tab. You click on that, you'll find a week's worth of our newspaper readings. Click on the Literature Readings, and they stay up there in perpetuity, and you'll find a wide variety of periodicals and literature for your listening enjoyment. And all of that is free for the blind and the print disabled at audiblelocalledger.org. Org, the Archived Readings tab. Now for our latest lottery results, we go to the MassLottery.com website. So for Tuesday, February 6th, yesterday's numbers game in the midday drawing, the numbers were 0954. In the evening drawing, the numbers were 2911. Again, the midday drawing for yesterday's numbers game, 0954, the evening drawing, 2911. Mass cash results for Tuesday, February 6th, 9, 20, 23, 29, and 30. Mega Millions results for Tuesday, February 6th, 2, 10, 31, 44, and 57, with 10, the bonus ball. And finally, Lucky for Life rounds out our lottery results for Tuesday, February 6th, 16, 32, 34, 36, 47, and three's the bonus number. And those are the results. Good luck to all who play. Remember us if you win. From the cover of the, or the front page of today's Cape Cod Times, the headline reads, Kenneth Ellis recalled by family. Hyannis man killed by Maine police officer. This is reported by Rachel Devaney. When Jeff Mendoza found out that his cousin, Kenneth Ellis, was shot and killed by a Maine police officer, Mendoza said he was heartbroken. 
They executed him. I can't believe it happened, said Mendoza, who currently lives in Jacksonville, Florida. Ellis was fatally shot by a Freiburg, Maine police officer on January 31st after a two-state chase, Freiburg Police Chief Aaron Mick said. According to Mick, Ellis, who was 52, of Hyannis, was shot after the pickup truck he was driving crashed, and he emerged from the vehicle carrying a knife. According to Mick, the officer on scene repeatedly instructed Ellis to drop the knife, but he refused to do so. The suspect continued to walk toward the cruiser. The officer fired eight rounds, he said over the telephone. Ellis was pronounced dead at the scene. Amy Cook, Ellis's ex-girlfriend and mother to his two children, said she recently watched a black-and-white doorbell camera video which captured a portion of the police chase and Ellis's vehicle as it hit a snowbank. Cook, who lives in New Hampshire, provided the WMTWTV YouTube video to the Times. The police say they yelled at Kenny three times to drop a knife, but all you hear is silence and then eight gunshots, said Cook. The police officer opened fire and emptied the whole clip into Kenny, she said. There was no need for that. How did the incident start? It started at about 6.30 p.m. when a motorist told a Conway, New Hampshire police sergeant that a black F-150 pickup truck was speeding, tailgating, and passing people on the road, Mick said. Short time later, an officer spotted that truck parked at a convenience store in Conway, Mick said. Ellis was outside the vehicle, and when the officer tried to talk to him, Ellis returned to the truck and drove off. The officer pursued Ellis and notified Maine authorities the truck was headed toward the border, Mick said. A Freiburg police officer and an Oxford County Sheriff's deputy were stationed at the visitor's center in Freiburg. The sheriff's deputy followed a truck that passed by, but Mick said it was the wrong truck. A short time later, a second truck going 80 to 100 miles an hour, drove by, he said, and the Freiburg officer pursued the truck. As the truck headed toward downtown Freiburg, it T-boned a vehicle making a left turn into a gas station, Mick said. The truck then hit a second car, causing it to flip over, and continued about 150 to 200 feet and hit a pylon in the center of town, he said. Ellis emerged from the passenger side of the truck carrying a knife, Mick said. In the meantime, the sheriff's deputy collided with a vehicle making a left turn, Mick said. The deputy suffered what were thought to be non-life-threatening injuries, according to the Associated Press. A total of seven cars were involved in the incident, Mick said. It was a wild scene in downtown Freiburg. The shooting is under investigation by the Maine Attorney General's office, as is the policy when an officer uses deadly force, Mick said. The officer involved was placed on paid administrative leave, he said. Freiburg, Maine is a rural community of about 3,400 residents located on the border of New Hampshire. The town's about a two-and-a-half-hour drive directly north from Boston. Why was Kenneth Ellis in Maine? While she didn't speak with Ellis immediately before his death, Cook said she was abruptly woken by phone calls between 12.30 a.m. and 1 a.m. from the Ellis family, informing her that Ellis was dead. My heart sank, said Cook. Ellis was on his way to see their son, said Cook, who she didn't name. Cook said a family member informed Ellis that their son had been arrested, and Ellis immediately wanted to help. I wish he could have called me so I could have calmed him down and explained to him what was going on, said Cook. Ellis has been in and out of jail throughout his life, mostly related to his mental health, said Cook. When he was on the medication, he was doing good, said Cook. He was always a hard worker. He had tons of friends on the Cape. He still does to this day. 
In 2019, Ellis, then of Dennis, was charged and later indicted on criminal charges, including rape of a child and indecent assault and battery on a child. The charges were dropped on June 15th of 2022 in Barnstable Superior Court. The circumstances behind the charges, said Cook, didn't add up to who Ellis was as a person. The allegations, she said, came from an ex-girlfriend who wanted to hurt Ellis. If you knew Kenny, you knew he would never do anything like that, said Cook. In a GoFundMe set up by Ellis's niece, Tia Johnson, it's noted that Ellis was also living with a, with a brain tumor. He was still able to find the brighter side of life. If he ever noticed you were sad or mad, he would always crack a joke or do something silly that would light up the room. It's something we will all miss about him, said Johnson on the GoFundMe page. About a year ago, Cook said Ellis was also attacked in Hyannis by an unknown assailant. He was hit in the head and left overnight in the cold, said Cook. He was on life support at Cape Cod Hospital and brain scans showed he was brain dead, said Cook. But as soon as the medical, he medical staff took him off the life support, he woke up, she said. Ellis was raised on Cape Cod. He lived on Cape Cod in Hyannis and Dennis within the last five years, but Ellis grew up in Harwich, said Mendoza. As a teen and a young adult, Ellis was always building muscle cars and was interested in auto body work and roofing, said Mendoza. He had this black Chevy Nova that he built. That thing was like his baby, said Mendoza. He also had a Corvette. I worked for him for a while and he taught me a lot. We were pretty tight, me, him, and his brothers. Cook remembers Ellis as a happy-go-lucky guy and said he was always dancing and joking around. The duo met at Cape Cod Regional Technical High School in Harwich and had their daughter together in 1994. When Cook became pregnant with their son in 1997, she began to notice that Ellis's mind was changing. At the time, she said, he was a mollusk's fisherman and was often out to sea for four days at a time. I started to see that he was troubled and sometimes he could be a handful, she said. But he was never malicious. He wasn't a mean person. Ellis also lived in Florida, said Mendoza. The duo initially drove to Florida together, and Ellis remained there for about five years, said Mendoza. He was shrimping down there, and I went to Daytona and worked, and we kept in contact, said Mendoza. While Ellis had a history of mental illness and substance abuse in the last several years, Mendoza said Ellis was doing well. It's sad, he said, that people continue to judge him for his past mistakes. There's been a lot of bad talk about his record, and people judge him by that, unfortunately. He did a lot of good things, too, he said. I'm a firm believer that nobody's perfect. In a Facebook post, Johnson said Ellis made mistakes in his life, but he didn't deserve to die the way that he did. He was a human being with people who loved him, and that he loved, too, said Johnson on her post. I hope justice finds its way into this situation and with this sudden tragedy. The next headline reads, Help for Survivors. The district attorney says fight against sex trafficking on the Cape and Islands gets a $97,000 grant by Susan Vaughn as a special to the Cape Cod Times in Barnstable. Human trafficking does exist on Cape Cod and the islands. 58 sex trafficking cases were reported on the Cape and Islands from 2021 to 2023, with a 31% increase between 2022 and 2023, according to Cape and Islands DA Robert Galaboyce. New state grants fighting human trafficking and enhancing narcotics enforcement will go to eight local agencies, Galaboy said Monday, with state and local officials and organization heads by his side. 
The $97,051 human trafficking grant was the first for the Cape and Islands, Galliboy said. 22 years ago, people didn't believe there was trafficking on Cape Cod, said My Life, My Choice co-executive director Audrey Morrissey at the announcement. My Life, My Choice, based in Boston, will receive $50,000 to expand services to adolescent survivors of human trafficking on Cape Cod. Morrissey, who's a survivor of human trafficking, said, My Life, My Choice, aimed at ending commercial sexual exploitation, pairs adult survivors with adolescent survivors of sex trafficking in a mentorship role. A growing awareness of human trafficking on Cape Cod. A needs assessment survey of community agencies conducted by Galaboyce's office reported that 57% of individuals that the agencies work with had engaged in human sex work, said Danielle Whitney, who directs community programs and public relations for Galaboyce. Whitney and Vanessa Madge, chief of Galaboyce's new Child Protection and Human Trafficking Department, wrote the $97,051 grant offered by the State Executive Office of Public Safety and Security. The grant will pay for services on Cape Cod to support individuals caught up in human trafficking and help police investigate human trafficking. Galliboy said his office put together its own groups to deal with human trafficking issues after he heard a presentation by a human trafficking survivor in January of 2023 at a Cape Cod PATH event. Cape Cod PATH, that's P-A-T-H, is a community-founded task force that works to end human trafficking and its risk on Cape Cod, according to its website. Galliboyce also gave credit to Orleans Police Chief Scott McDonald for getting representatives from each Cape Police Department to work on the issue. How will the human trafficking money be used? The trafficking grant will in part provide $2,826 for care bags from Cape Cod Path for trafficking victims at every police department that contain the essentials they'll need to escape, Whitney said. The grant to My Life, My Choice will help expand those services that are now provided in two towns off Cape for Cape residents, Morrissey said after the meeting. She also expressed her support for a sex survivor's bill now being considered in the legislature that will no longer allow arrests of adult human trafficking survivors and clear their criminal records. We want to be able to help another survivor get out of the life, Morrissey said. Lisetta Hurge Putnam, executive director of Independence House in Hyannis that received $10,000 from the trafficking grant, said the organization will have counselors available for trafficking victims at police departments and hospitals. The organization will also provide intervention support and educational resources. Barnstable Police Department was the fourth recipient of the trafficking grant with $14,350 for training to aid trafficking investigations and $1,500 for QR code magnets with tip line information. How does sex trafficking occur on Cape Cod? Much of the human trafficking on Cape Cod is done online by sex trafficking persons who arrange dates for people, according to Madge from Galaboyce's office. They exploit their vulnerabilities, she said. Others who may be vulnerable are those who come to work on the Cape and Islands from other countries, she said. Madge also announced a new 24-7 hotline to report human trafficking by text or calling 774-822-0632. Again, 774-822-0632. A second grant goes to illegal narcotic, drug, and firearms investigations.
A second grant coming from the same state office of $98,998 is for the 2024 Commonwealth's Project Safe Neighborhood Program. The recipients include Galaboyce's office and the state police assigned to his office at $24,922, Yarmouth Police Department at $29,184, and Falmouth Police Department at $19,892. The funds will be used for equipment to assist in illegal narcotic drug and firearms investigations. Falmouth Police also will use grant money to train several officers. Behavioral Health Innovators in South Chatham will use $25,000 in grant funds to expand its Youth Alternative Peer Group program. At the Monday event, State Senator Julian Sear, a Democrat from Truro, and State Senator Susan Moran, Democrat from Falmouth, voiced their commitment to a partnership with Galaboyce's office to work on the human trafficking issue. Moving to the Cape and Islands section as we keep it local here at the Audible Local Ledger, police say that a detail officer was struck by an SUV on Route 28 in Yarmouth by Zane Rezak. In West Yarmouth, Route 28 between Giardino's and Timmy's Roast Beef was blocked off on Tuesday morning after a detail officer was struck by a vehicle while directing traffic across from the Sunbird Cape Cod Resort at 216 Route 28. The officer was transported to a hospital by Yarmouth Fire Department. Yarmouth police said the injured officer was alert when officers and rescuers were on the scene. A police dispatcher told the Times on Tuesday, the incident's under investigation, more information would be released. The other story in the Cape and Islands section has a headline that reads, Cared so deeply, East Ham community leader Art Otterino died on Sunday by Denise Coffey in East Ham. Arthur Otterino, a mainstay in town politics and historical preservation circles since retiring to the Cape, died Sunday from heart complications, according to East Ham town manager Jacqueline Beebe. Otterino was on vacation in South Carolina with his family at the time, she said. He was elected to the select board in 2020 and was serving as the board chairman at the time of his death. Beebe said select board members were a diverse group but were respectful, thoughtful, resolved issues, and moved on. She called Otterino a perfect example of a respectful, thoughtful leader. He let everyone speak, Bibi said by phone Tuesday. There were no power struggles. He was an amazing, steady guy. On Monday at a select board meeting, fellow board members remembered his care for the town, his participation on boards and committees, and his sense of humor. Members Amy Ekman and Jamie Dimitri said they always learned something from Otterino during board discussions. He always had a different perspective, and a thoughtful one, Ekman said. He cared so deeply about this town. Beebe called him a tireless worker and a great leader for the town, adding, no one worked harder on a committee. He was a respectful partner, a chairman, and human, she said in the meeting. Jim Russo East Ham Chamber of Commerce Executive Director called Otterino's death a tremendous loss for the town. He said Otterino was a strong advocate of the chamber and the local business community. He brought attention to the need for the business community in a place where many residents are retired. That's not an easy thing to do, Russo added. He was concerned about the town he lived in and wanted to support it any way he could, Russo said by phone Tuesday. 
Otterino served on the town planning board for nearly seven years, the finance committee for five and a half years, and the strategic planning committee where he was chairman, according to information on his LinkedIn page. Otterino was a member of the East Ham Historical Society and the Nauset Life Preservation Society. The society posted on Monday a picture of Otterino and his wife, Georgia, with the news of his death. Both are smiling, him in sunglasses and her in a pink baseball cap with Cape Cod embroidered on the front. The ocean stretches out behind them. He is survived by his wife and family members. And we'll finish off our local news with a little bit of high school basketball. It's the only local news that remains in today's Cape Cod Times. A reminder, we're reading you the edition of Wednesday, February 7th of 2024. That's today's date. In high school girls basketball, Upper Cape beats Blue Hills for their 11th straight win by Courtney Jacobs in Bourne. The Upper Cape Tech senior trio of Adriana Turner, Haley King, and Alina Hines have something in common besides graduating this year. They are three sport athletes. In the spring, the three led the Rams lacrosse team to their most wins, 15, in school history in their first ever vocational state championship. And in the fall, the three helped the Rams soccer team to an 11-6-2 record and a playoff victory. The triple threat now leads the Cape's hottest at 12-2 basketball team, both girls or boys. After a 51-45 win over Mayflower Athletic Conference opponent Blue Hills Monday, the Rams have now won 11 games in a row. The chemistry from playing year-round together has played a part in all the success. We know how we play in different sports like our speeds, our agility, our jumps, everything, Turner said. We've been together and played the same sports for four years so we can help the rest of the team. In addition to the camaraderie they brought from the field to the court, they also feel similarities between the three sports. For King, lacrosse and basketball plays are similar when it comes to making cuts or setting screens. As for Hines, she said the footwork translates to each sport. Whether it's play calls or the footwork, these three have the Rams pumping on all cylinders. Monday's Cape Cod Scores and Highlights by Courtney Jacobs the Cape and Islands League Championship for Boys and Girls Indoor Track and Field took place at the Reggie Lewis Center in Boston on Sunday. Girls Indoor Track and Field, Nauset was crowned the Cape and Island League Champs as they finished first with a score of 119.5, while Dennis Yarmouth placed second with 104.5 and Barnstable took third with 94. For the first place Warriors, senior captain Liz Mayer, Threw a 30 feet, 11 and a quarter inches in the shot put for first, while junior Madeline Mahoney won the 1,000 meter in 308.46. Sophomore Violet Roach high jumped 5 feet, 2 inches, and long jumped 16 feet, 8 inches for first place finishes. For DY, Brianna Brahm won the 55 meter in 7.46 seconds and the 300 meter in 40.92 seconds, both personal records and the second in the state. While Brianna Hannaford placed first in the 55 meter hurdles, 9 seconds, 40, 9.41 seconds, which is a personal record, and the 4 by 200 meter of Tiana Jacques, Brahm, Rosanna Joachim, and Deshawnee Baker finished first in 1 minute 54 seconds. For Barnstable, senior captain Lily Dedeco finished her season undefeated in the mile and two mile, 
521 mile and 1128 2 mile respectively and anchored the winning 4x400 relay team along with teammates McKenna Dennis, Kara Clifford and Sophia Murphy in a time of 440.85. Chloe Dibb won the 600 meter in a personal record of 140.94. The 4x800 relay team of Emma Steenstra, Layla Notemayer, Dib and Callie Dedeco won with a time of 10.43, about a minute in front of runner-up Nossett. In boys' indoor track and field, Cape and Islands League Championship, Nossett won the Cape and Island League Championship with a score of 120 points, while Barnstable had 102 for second, and Falmouth with 76 points had third at the Reggie Lewis Center Sunday. For the Warriors, senior captain Damian Beber placed first in the 300-meter, 36.78 seconds, and the 600 meter, a minute 32.87 seconds, while senior captain Peta Dill long jumped 19 feet, 4.75 inches for first place. Junior Adian Brown won the 55 meter hurdles in 8 seconds and the 55 meter dash in 6.79 seconds while the 4x200 relay team of Adian Brown, Reed Dill, Dominic Beber, and Damian Beber ran a season-best 1 minute 36.13 seconds for first place. For Barnstable, senior Harry Ells took first in the shot put to remain undefeated in league action this season with a toss of 41 feet 1 inch. The relay team of Jay Cornwall, Jackson Merrill, Ryan Wolf, and Kevin DeFoitis won the 4x800-meter relay by about 30 seconds ahead of second-place finisher Falmouth in 9 minutes, 26.97 seconds. In other high school action, in girls' basketball, it was St. John Paul II, 59, Nantucket, 34, Falmouth Academy, 31, Sturgis East, 24, Nauset, 41, Cape Cod Academy, 37, Upper Cape, 51, Blue Hills, 45. In boys' basketball, it was South Shore Tech, 50, Cape Tech, 48, Sturgis West, 48, St. John Paul II, 42. In boys' hockey, it was Somerville, 6, St. John Paul II, 2. The Lions dropped to 4-11-2. and 11 and 2. In swimming and diving, Cape and Island's last chance meet, the last chance meet gave swimmers one last shot at swimming a sectional or state qualifying time. The Martha's Vineyard 400-yard freestyle relay team of Ronan Mullen, 55.1 seconds, Klaus Smith, 55.76 seconds, Emmett Silva, 55.75 seconds, and Kawa Deasis, 51.84 seconds, qualified for the Division II state championship with a time of 3.38.45. That completes the local news. Moving on to the uh, national news. Appeals court says no immunity for Trump. Rules the ex-president can be prosecuted for his role in the 2020 election interference by Bart Jansen in Washington. A federal appeals panel ruled unanimously Tuesday that Donald Trump isn't immune to charges he tried to overturn the 2020 election, setting the stage for another potential showdown at the Supreme Court for the former president. Trump is expected to appeal the decision, which rejected an argument from his lawyers last month that any act by a president, even ordering the murder of political opponents by U.S. Navy SEALs, cannot be prosecuted unless the president is first impeached by the House of Representatives and convicted in the Senate. 
But a three-judge panel of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that Trump is not immune from prosecution. Former President Trump lacked any lawful discretionary authority to defy federal criminal law, and he is answerable in court for his conduct, the panel ruled. A spokesperson for Trump's presidential campaign said the former president respectfully disagreed with the decision and that he would appeal. If immunity is not granted to a president, every future president who leaves office will be immediately indicted by the opposing party, spokesperson Stephen Chung said in a statement. Without complete immunity, a president of the United States would not be able to properly function. The case marked the first chance for a federal appeals court to gauge a former president's criminal immunity because Trump's the first one to be charged. Each side claims the Constitution and historical precedent are on their side. The case could eventually reach the Supreme Court, where Justice Department Special Counsel Jack Smith last month asked for a ruling, but the High Court said the appeals court should weigh in first. The panel postponed sending the decision back to the district court, until February 12th to give Trump a chance to appeal to the Supreme Court. The case was decided by a three-judge panel. Judge Karen Henderson was appointed by former President George H.W. Bush, and Michelle Childs and Florence Pan were each appointed by President Joe Biden. For the purpose of this criminal case, former President Trump has become citizen Trump with all of the defenses of any other criminal defendant, the panel ruled. But any executive immunity that may have protected him while he served as president no longer protects him against this prosecution. Trump's lawyer, John Sauer, had argued that a president is shielded from criminal charges for his actions while in office because otherwise political rivals could seek to punish him for contentious policy decisions. Sauer argued a president would have to be impeached and convicted in a Senate trial before he could be charged with killing a political rival, accepting bribes, or committing treason. Judge Pan asked Sauer whether he was saying the president could sell pardons, could sell military secrets, could order SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival. Sauer replied that a president would be swiftly impeached and convicted for murder, but he said otherwise the Supreme Court has held that a president's official acts are never reviewable by the courts. There's a political process that would have to occur under our Constitution, Sauer said. If there's no impeachment ever and no conviction, then the official acts are immune, period. Trump, who attended the appeals hearing, was impeached in the House of Representatives on charges he incited the insurrection on January 6th of 2021, but he was acquitted in the Senate trial. The panel ruled that Trump's position would threaten the government's separation of powers between executive, judicial, and legislative branches. At bottom, former Former President Trump's stance would collapse our system of separated powers by placing the president beyond the reach of all three branches, the panel ruled. Presidential immunity against federal indictment would mean that, as to the president, the Congress could not legislate, the executive could not prosecute, and the judiciary could not review. U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin had scheduled the trial for March 4th but postponed it until after the appeals are exhausted. Trump has sought to push this and three other criminal trials he faces until after the November election as he campaigns again for the White House. Trump has pleaded not guilty to four federal charges, three for conspiracy, one for obstruction, for falsely claiming election fraud and trying to overturn the legitimate election results. Prosecutors contend the conspiracies culminated with a 2021 Capitol attack. 
The riot temporarily prevented Congress from certifying Biden's victory, forced lawmakers and then-Vice President Mike Pence to flee, and it injured more than 140 police officers. Trump's lawyers argued that the Constitution and the country's founders believed the president should be shielded from criminal prosecution to protest the office from political antagonists. No prosecutor, judge, or jury may sit in judgment over the president's official acts, Sauer wrote in his filing. A president's official acts can never be examinable by the courts, he wrote, quoting one of the earliest Supreme Court decisions. The Senate's acquittal of Trump at an impeachment trial charging him with inciting the insurrection of the Capitol prevented him from being tried again for the same events, Sauer argued. The Senate voted 57 to 43 to convict Trump, but a two-thirds majority was required for conviction. Smith's team argued that historical precedent, the principles of the separation of powers between branches of government, and the Constitution all make clear that a former president can be charged criminally. Lawyers for the special counsel argued that Trump's claim of immunity would prevent prosecution of a president who accepts a bribe in exchange for directing a lucrative government contract, a president who instructs the FBI to plant evidence on a political enemy, or a president who orders the National Guard to murder his critics, or a president who sells nuclear secrets to an adversary. Under the defendant's framework, the nation would have no recourse to deter a president from inciting his supporters during a State of the Union address to kill opposing lawmakers, thereby hamstringing any impeachment proceeding to ensure that he remains in office unlawfully, Assistant Special Counsel James Pierce wrote. The appeals panel wrote that safeguards against prosecutors charging former presidents include grand juries preventing arbitrary fishing ex expeditions or initiating investigations out of malice or an intent to harass. Weighing these factors, we conclude that the risk that former presidents will be unduly harassed by meritless federal criminal prosecutions appears slight, the panel added. We're just past the midway portion of our reading, and regular listeners are aware, I'm sure, it's at this stage in our reading when we take a pause from the news, um, the hard news, and move to a different kind of news, which is local in nature, and that is the obituaries and death notices that are listed in the Cape Cod Times. There are two pages of them in today's, obitu in today's Cape Cod Times. The date is Wednesday, February 7th of 2024, and the first obituary is of Eleanor P. Abbott, or known as Ellie, formerly of Dedham, who passed, surrounded by all of her children and grandchildren, on Sunday, February 4th at the age of 92. She was born September 26th, 1931, in Jamaica Plain, and was raised on Mount Vernon Street in Dedham and graduated from Dedham High School in 1949. A visitation will be held on Thursday, February 8th, from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. at Katuit Federated Church, 40 School Street in Katuit. A funeral service will follow in the church tomorrow at 10 a.m. A graveside service will be held on Thursday, February 8th, tomorrow at 1.30 p.m. at Knollwood Memorial Park, 321 High Street in Canton. In lieu of flowers, any donations in Ellie's memory may be made to Katuit Federated Church, 40 School Street in Katuit. The next obituary is of Mary Ellen Loftus of Falmouth, 
a 37-year resident of East Falmouth who passed peacefully at her home with her eldest son by her side January 30th. She was the beloved companion of her longtime partner, the late Charles Van Arsdale. Mary was born on April 12, 1932, in Watertown. She was raised in Watertown and attended St. Patrick's Grammar School and High School. After completing high school, Mary moved to Hudson, where she would raise her family. She was a devoted single mother of her three children, and she worked very hard to support her children while also working multiple jobs. After her children were grown, Mary moved to Cape Cod. A visitation will be held this Friday, February 9th, from 4 p.m. to 7 p.m. at Chapman Funerals and Cremations at 74 Algonquin Ave, that's Route 151, in Mashpee. A funeral mass will be held on Saturday, February 10th, at 10 a.m. at St. Anthony's Church, 167 East Falmouth Highway, that's Route 28, in East Falmouth. The burial will immediately follow at St. Anthony's Cemetery in East Falmouth. In lieu of flowers, any donations in Mary's honor can be made to St. Jude Children's Research Hospital at 501 St. Jude Place, Memphis, Tennessee, or online at St. Jude, that's S-T-J-U-D-E dot O-R-G. The next obituaries of William Martin III, who passed on December 29th with his dear wife of 60 years, Elizabeth, by his side. He was 88 and had suffered from Parkinson's disease for 20 years. William was born December 5, 1935, in Mount Vernon, New York, and his formative years were spent in Westport, Connecticut, where he attended Staples High School. He graduated from the University of Bridgeport School of Engineering. Bill had a successful career in the elevator industry. He was owner and president of Bridgeport, Connecticut-based Martin Elevator and Hydraulic Corp. He is survived by his wife, Elizabeth, and many who will miss him dearly. The services will be private. Please consider making a donation in Bill's name to the Parkinson's Foundation. The next obituary is of Christopher P. Willett, affectionately known as Stan to friends and family, who passed on January 29th, leaving his wife, Kimberly Willett, and many who will miss him dearly. Stan particularly enjoyed spending time with and entertaining family and friends, especially his many nieces and nephews. He was a career employee of S.G. Torres in Hyannis, Mass., where he was very well-liked and respected by both colleagues and management alike. Memorial visiting hours will be held on Monday, February 12th, from 4 to 7 p.m. at Chapman Funerals and Cremations, 58 Long Pond in South Yarmouth. The next obituary is of Donna L. Woodward of Yarmouthport, who passed on January 30th. She was beloved wife of Joshua L. Woodward and was born in Waterbury, Connecticut. She attended school in Waterbury, graduated with an associate's degree in retail management, and was employed by T.J. Maxx Company on Cape Cod for the last 25 years. She is survived by her husband and many family and friends. The family wishes to extend a special thanks to the girls, Cindy, Holly, Barbara, Doreen, Kathy, Denise, Laura, and Sue, for their love and support over the last 18 months. A celebration of Donna's life will be held at a later date. The next listing is of Edward H. Mason, 90 years old of East Dennis, the loving husband of Betsy Mason, 
passed away with his family by his side on February 1st. Services will be held at a later date. The next obituary is of Lillian C. Matthews, who passed on February 5th, peacefully surrounded by her family after a brief illness. Lillian was born on November 26, 1932, in Fall River. She is survived by many who will miss her dearly. A funeral mass will be held on Thursday, tomorrow, February 8th, at 11 a.m. at Our Lady of Victory Parish, 230 South Main Street in Centerville, with burial at Mosswood Cemetery, 280 Putnam Ave in Catuit. In lieu of flowers, please consider a donation to the VNA Hospice at 73 Service Road in East Sandwich, Mass. The next obituary is of Peter Farnell Brooks of Yarmouth Port and of Needham, who passed peacefully on Sunday, February 4th at the age of 82. He was born in Newton. His family settled in Needham in 1947. Peter graduated from Needham High in 1959 went on to receive his associate's degree in mechanical engineering from Northeastern and spent his career working as a mechanical engineer with GE, Draper Labs, Procter & Gamble, and Bristol-Myers. A visitation will be held in the Eaton and McKay Funeral Home at 465 Center Street in Newton Corner on Friday, this Friday, February 9th, from 4 to 7. A graveside service will be held at Brewster Cemetery, Lower Road, Brewster, Mass., on Saturday, February 10th at 11.30 a.m. Donations in Peter's name can be made to the Parkinson's Foundation. And that concludes the obituaries listed in the Cape Cod Times for today, Wednesday, February 7th of 2024. There is one news article, actually another news article, that deals with a... Uh, celebrity death, as it were. Country singer-songwriter Keith dies at 62. That's Toby Keith. Songwriter's Hall of Fame inductee, also known for his philanthropic work by Marcus K. Dowling of the Nashville Tennessean in Nashville. Toby Keith, the singer-songwriter behind the most played country song of the 1990s, died of stomach cancer on Monday at 62 years old. According to a statement on his website and social media accounts, Keith passed peacefully while surrounded by family. He fought his fight with grace and courage, the statement added. No other comments are immediately expected as his family is asked for privacy. He's survived by his wife of 39 years, Tricia, and three children, two daughters, Shelley Covell Rowland, 43 years old, adopted by Keith in 1984, and Crystal, Crystal Keith LaDawn Covell Sandubre, 38 years old, plus a son, Stellan Keith Covell, 26 years old. He had four grandchildren. Keith was unarguably an artist as beloved in Moore and Norman, Oklahoma, as Elvis Presley was in Memphis, Tennessee, and Dolly Parton in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. Before he ever came to Nashville, Tennessee, he was earning tons of money climbing oil rigs in Oklahoma. The wages deterred him from continuing to pursue an education as a petroleum engineer. However, by 1982, Oklahoma's boom had gone bust. Hustling for money, Keith worked many jobs, including as a bricklayer, playing defensive end with a semi-pro Oklahoma City Drillers football team, and earning $35 a night playing cover songs in local bars in the Oklahoma and Texas Red Dirt region. 
After a half-decade of touring, eventually nationally, Keith, amid the breakout success of fellow Red Dirt artists Kix, Brooks, and Ronnie Dunn, was courted by Harold Shedd at Mercury Nashville. He was 32 years old. Keith sold nearly 20 million albums in his first Nashville decade, achieved over two dozen top ten hits on country radio, and became a dependable multimillionaire touring revenue leader, often returning to areas where he'd earned $50 a night 15 years prior, able to charge a hundred times more. Anecdotes are plentiful about how confident Keith became in his abilities as a Music Row hitmaker. Last I heard, label executives who turned me down were cutting grass for a living, Keith told Forbes. Still, by 1999, it was believed that Keith's chart-topping appeal had stalled. His initial champion at Mercury Nashville, Shedd, was eventually succeeded by Luke Lewis. When Lewis heard the rough cut of, How do you like me now? He said, Keith recalled, I don't hear a hit. Keith told Forbes he responded by asking to be dropped from the label. Keith brought back his album for 90, bought back his album for $93,000 and moved to his producer James Stroud's Nashville outpost of DreamWorks Records for $200,000. The album sold 3.1 million copies and its title single was his largest single, selling single since Should Have Been a Cowboy. Toby's his own man. He knows what he wants to say and what the people want to hear. So you trust him and basically leave him alone, Stroud said. Between 2000 and 2010, Keith became as a savvy businessman whose boardroom work established a continuing Nashville precedent. He began a record label, had a stake in Big Machine Records, which signed Tim McGraw and Taylor Swift. He also wasn't afraid to get political, releasing the biting single Courtesy of the Red, White, and Blue, The Angry American, in 2002. The song spurred Keith's continued support of the U.S. military, including starting in 2002 numerous trips to the Middle East. I had a dad that was a veteran. Taught me how precious our freedom is, Keith said in 2003. I was so angry when we were attacked here on American soil that it leaked out of me. You know, some people wept when they heard it, some people got goosebumps. Some people were emotionally moved. Some cheered, turned their fists in the air. On the other side was Keith's 2011 single, Red Solo Cup. Keith said it was freaking awesome, but also the stupidest song I've ever heard in my life. For the 2017 National Medal of Arts recipient and 2015 Songwriters Hall of Fame inductee, that type of broad appeal spread into his impressive and groundbreaking business acumen and philanthropic deeds. Among his numerous charitable works, Keith helped found Alley's House in 2004, a nonprofit group that aids Oklahoma children with cancer. At the time of his death, he had also licensed his name to over two dozen Toby Keith's I Love This Bar and Grill establishments nationwide. Keith revealed his battle with cancer in June 2022 via social media. Last fall, I was diagnosed with stomach cancer. I've spent the last six months receiving chemo, radiation, and surgery. So far, so good. I need time to breathe, recover, and relax, and I'm looking forward to spending this time with my family. But I will see the fans sooner than later. I can't wait. His last Music City appearance was in September at the People's Choice Country Awards at the Grand Old Opry. At the event, he received the Country Icon Award. 
During his acceptance speech, Keefe thanked his family, collaborators, fans, and God. I want to thank the Almighty for allowing me to be here tonight. Been riding shotgun with me for a little while. Fellow Oklahoman and 2000-era country star Blake Shelton offered an earnest yet humorous tribute, to which Keith retorted, I bet you all never thought you'd see me in skinny jeans, which he wore instead of boot-cut or straight-leg jeans because of his health. Keith also performed Don't Let the Old Man In, saying he chose the song to inspire anyone watching or sharing his cancer fight. Clearly shaken by the profoundness of the moment, Keith sang, Try to love on your wife and stay close to your friends. Toast each sundown with wine. Don't let the old man in. His wife, Trisha, could not hold back tears. Finishing off the front page with some national news, now that we've gone through um, quite a bit of local and obituaries and news of that sort. The headline reads, Jury Finds Crumbly Guilty in Sun's Rampage. By Christopher Kahn, Janine Santucci, Teresa Baldas, Gina Kaufman, and Crystal Nurse of the USA Today Network. On Tuesday, Jennifer Crumbly became the first parent in the United States to be found guilty of involuntary manslaughter for a mass school shooting in Michigan committed by her teenage son. Crumbly, who's 45 years old, was convicted by a jury on four counts of involuntary manslaughter for her role in the November 30th, 2021 shooting, in which her son Ethan opened fire at Oxford High School, killing four of his classmates, injuring six others and a teacher. The first parent in the U.S. to be tried in a mass school shooting, Crumbly faces a maximum sentence of 60 years in prison. Prosecutors argued Jennifer Crumley knew her son, who was 15 at the time of the shooting, was struggling with alarming mental health issues. They said instead of getting him the help he needed, she and her husband James bought their son the gun that was used in the attack and then attempted to flee when it was becoming likely that they would be charged. James Crumbly, who faces the same charges as his wife, is scheduled to go on trial in March. Jennifer Crumley, who took the stand in her own defense last week, said she never foresaw her son's deadly actions. She said her son didn't show signs of being mentally ill other than being anxious about school and his future after graduation. She also said that while she and her husband bought their son the firearm, he was only allowed to use it at the shooting range with his dad. She said it was her husband's responsibility to securely store the gun. The groundbreaking trial is likely to impact how society views parents' responsibility when their children access guns and use them in mass shootings, legal experts said. This is a case that could create real incentives for parents to be much more cautious giving their children access to firearms, Adam Winkler of the UCLA School of Law previously told USA Today. During closing arguments, Jennifer Crumley's lawyer Shannon Smith said the case could set a dangerous precedent for parents who are trying to do their best for their children. I do wish, more than anything, that this case could bring justice to victims of the shooting and to the victims of the terrorism that day, Smith said. This is not justice. This is not how justice works. This does nothing for people who have lost everything. And it does nothing to undo the tragedy that unfolded on November 30th. The shooter, who's now 17, was sentenced to life without parole in December after pleading guilty to multiple charges for the shooting that killed Madison Baldwin, 17 years old, Tate Meyer, 
who's 16 years old, Hannah St. Juliana, who was 14 years old, and Justice Justin Schilling, who was 17 years old. A seven-day trial largely focused on the foreseeability of the shooter's deadly actions and whether Jennifer Crumley could have prevented it. The prosecution cited a handful of text messages sent eight months before the shooting in which the teenager texted his mom that he saw a demon in their house and that clothes were flying around. He also texted a friend that he had paranoia and was hearing voices. The prosecution cited a journal that the shooter kept in which he wrote, I have zero help, in capital letters, for my mental problems, and it's causing me to shoot up the expletive-deleted school. Jennifer Crumley testified she never saw the texts her son sent his friend, she never saw her son's journal, and that her son never asked her to take him to a therapist. If he had, she said she would have given him an appointment. She also testified she didn't think it was relevant to notify the school that her son had access to a gun at home, saying she never thought her son would harm others, as he had never been in trouble before. On the morning of the shooting, the Crumleys were summoned to the school over a troubling drawing their son had made on a math worksheet featuring a gun, a bleeding human body, and the words, The thoughts won't stop. Help me. School officials told the parents their son was having a hard time and needed to be seen immediately by a mental health professional. Counselors at the school testified in Jennifer Crumley's trial that because they were unaware that the teen might have access to a gun, they allowed him to stay at school that day, concluding that it would be better for him to be around peers than be alone at home. According to court testimony, the Crumleys were never asked whether their son had access to a gun, nor did school administrators search his backpack, where the teen kept the firearm, because they felt they had no probable cause to do so. The parents returned to their jobs and promised to get their son counseling within 48 hours. Two hours later, their son fired his first shot. In closing arguments, defense attorney Shannon Smith told jurors, no one could have expected this, including Mrs. Crumley. But Oakland County Prosecutor Karen McDonald urged jurors to remember that Jennifer Crumley said she wouldn't do one thing different. The tragic part about it is none of it was hard. None of it, McDonald said. The smallest thing, just the smallest thing, could have saved Hannah and Tate and Justin and Madison. In a very typical story from Capitol Hill, party leaders divided on border deal. Senate GOP poised to block a bill that a bipartisan group spent months on by Riley Began and Francesca Chambers of USA Today in Washington. President Joe Biden lambasted hardline Republicans Tuesday for preparing to block legislation that would give him the authority to quickly expel migrants who enter the country illegally and to fund military operations in Israel and Ukraine. With the $118 billion bill on the verge of flaming out on Capitol Hill, Biden used the bully pulpit to scold his political opponents for using the border crisis as a cudgel against him in the 2024 presidential election, instead of working with Democrats to pass the most conservative immigration package in decades. All indications are this bill won't even move forward to the Senate floor. Why? A simple reason. Donald Trump. Because Donald Trump thinks it's bad for him politically, Biden said. He'd rather weaponize this issue than actually solve it. 
Even before the bill text was released, the legislation began dying on the vine after former President Trump came out forcefully against it. Republican senators had begun softening their support, which a bipartisan group of lawmakers had been working on with leadership support for many months. Trump is the expected Republican presidential nominee, and he's viewed by many conservatives as the de facto head of the party. The reversal among Senate Republicans is a stunning turnaround from just a few months ago when they demanded that Democrats attach a border security solution to Biden's request for $106 billion in additional aid to Ukraine, Israel, and other foreign security priorities. Senate Republicans are now poised to block a border security bill that a bipartisan group of lawmakers spent months working on, and which they demanded in exchange for additional aid to Ukraine. Biden warned Tuesday of far-reaching consequences to America and its allies if a deal is not reached. Is it dead on arrival? Less than two days after the bill that funded Biden's national security priorities came out, nearly half of the Republicans in the Senate have said they're against it. Most argue it doesn't go far enough to stop illegal migration into the U.S. Some say it doesn't make sense to advance legislation that's dead on arrival in the House, and some would prefer to leave it as an election year issue. The third-ranking Republican in leadership, Wyoming Senator John Barrasso, came out against the bill Tuesday saying Americans will turn to the upcoming election to end the border crisis. The second-ranking Republican, South Dakota Senator John Tooney, won't commit Monday to voting for it, saying he was still reviewing the text. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, a Republican from Kentucky, reportedly didn't actively lobby for or against the bill during a closed-door meeting Monday night. Instead, telling members they should vote against a procedural move, a procedural vote to move the package forward on Wednesday. The Senate will vote on cloture on the bill Wednesday, a procedural vote that would advance the bill and make it available for a majority vote of the full Senate. A higher threshold, 60 senators, is necessary to pass the procedural hurdle. Speaking with reporters after the meeting Monday night, Oklahoma Senator James Langford, the lead GOP negotiator on the bill, said he anticipated the Wednesday vote wouldn't pass and Senate Republicans would vote together to stop consideration for the moment. Many Republican senators have said they want more time to consider possible amendments, while others have said the package is close to dead. Behind the scenes, concerns about the 2024 presidential election or opposition to Ukraine funding are adding additional complications. Some conservatives who back military assistance to Israel have been pushing for Europe to foot more of the bill for Ukraine's defense. Biden said Tuesday Republicans must decide whether they serve the American people or his predecessor, as he accused them of letting petty partisan politics derail the compromise legislation. If the bill fails this week, Biden said he would campaign on its defeat. Every day between now and November, the American people are going to know that the only reason the border is not secure is because of Trump and his MAGA Republican friends. Biden pledged, it's time for Republicans in the Congress to show a little courage, show a little spine. And with that, we have come to the end of our reading of the Cape Cod Times, dated today, Wednesday, February 7th of 2024. This is your reader, Eric, saying be well, be safe, look after each other. Remember our veterans. Bye for now.